Hello, I'm David M. Green, and today's other famous person is actor, director, teacher, and writer, Mr. Francis Greenslade, who joins me right now. Uh, thank you very much. I recognise those words written by me. It's descriptive of me. I'm wondering how actually true they are, but anyway. I did lift it from your website. Yes. But thank you very much for talking to me today. I thought I'd start with um, uh, the most interesting fact that I found out about you while I was researching for this. Um, between 1995 and 2003, you made five separate appearances in Blue Healers. <laughs> yes, I did. But each time you played a different character. Yes, yes. I think they had a policy, you know, because it it went through so many actors. You know, every episode there has to be a new, you know, system, a series of suspects. So you're allowed to go back after about a year, I think, in a, in a completely different guise. So I played, you know, a, an accountant and a, a roo shooter and a... a I think a con man and a religious ambulance driver and then <laughs> finally a man who was obsessed with chickens because, you know, they were, they were getting a little bit... The, the writers were having a bit of trouble coming up with new ideas. So I did one that was all about um, chicken diseases and um, yeah, right. that was, that was um, involved sitting in a cage surrounded by dead chickens. That was quite unpleasant, <laughs> I remember, and having to be, you know... Were they actual chickens? They were real lice-ridden chickens oh. with dead with things crawling on them, so it was, it was not pleasant at all, no. Oh, my God. Um, well, I, uh, I thought I'd test you here. Oh, dear. For five meaningless points, <laughs> can, you, can you recall the names of the five characters oh you play? Oh, God. Because <laughs> I've got them here. Oh, well, one was John. Someone. Actually, two were John. Oh. But the animal <laughs> was John, and I think the chicken man was John. Yep. Um, was there a a Trent or a Brock or something like that? No, um, not on this list. No, I no, you've got me. I've got nothing. No. Okay. Well, I can barely remember, you know, the fact that I played or the episode. So no, I can't. Okay. Well, for the record, uh, does this ring a bell? Leo McArdle. Oh yes, he was the he was the sort of con man. Yep. 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 Uh, John Turner. John Turner was the ambulance driver, I think. John Waterson was the chicken man. Yep. Uh, going back to 97, Shane Thompson. That was the roo shooter from up north. Yes, right. That was an unusual casting, I thought, but anyway. Okay, and your first one back in 95, Dean Edwards. Dean Edwards, the, uh, the uh, cowardly accountant at a bank that had been robbed. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So much crime in that city. <laughs> oh, no. And actually, it was quite... It's fun doing it. I always felt sorry for the, the regular cast because they just had to sit around and say... Where were you on the night? You know, we've discovered this fact. Um, you're hiding this from us. You know, it was just a template of, you know, similar questions. And they got quite... Real police work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they got <laughs> deadly bored. Um, yeah, I remember doing my first... My first one, I had a lot to do with William McGuinness, who is notoriously naughty on these things. Oh, yeah. You turn up as a, as a guest and you, you know, obsessively learnt your lines and you're very nervous. And it's only one chance to rehearse. And uh, he spent the entire time doing it in an Indian accent, you know, which is completely hopeless. You can't <laughs> rehearse when someone's doing an Indian accent because he was just so bored with asking the same questions over and over and again. I ran for 10 years? Oh, yeah. I'm Something like that? Yeah. Um, uh, John Wood did very well out of it, I think. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. 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 Uh, now, you were born in the Solomon Islands. Mm. My father was a... Um, well, both my parents, uh, and my father's dead now, but uh, were... Uh, entomologists, that is, they studied insects. Okay. My mother actually studies a, an insect called a calimbola, which is absolutely tiny and no one's ever heard of them. My father studied ants, and there are a large number of ants in the Solomon Islands, and he was sent by the British Museum to, 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 um, to study them. Apparently, uh, and I have no memory of this, but I actually did discover a, um, a calimbola in the Solomon Islands when I was three, right. which is quite remarkable because I couldn't tell you what a calimbola looked like now. <laughs> you know, they're microscopic, but apparently I did discover one. It's named after me, um, and apparently it's a, as far as calimbola go, it's a fairly important calimbola. Right. Um, yeah, so... Uh, you mean you discovered one, you just found one, or you actually discovered like, a new strain? A new I discovered strain. a new, a completely new calimbola that had never been found before. I imagine that, you know, they left me on a rug and came back and one was crawling on me or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't obviously recall it at all. Um, What's it called? You said it's named... It's up called Bovicornia Greenslade Eye. Right. It's not called Francis, sadly, right. but it's, um, it does have my name. Bovicornia is Latin for horns of a cow. Apparently, and it, is, it has little horns that look like cows' horns. So, 
Yeah, but they're everywhere. They're, they're, the biggest is only a millimetre, and they just, every bush has hundreds of them on. They're, yeah. Right, that's but, fascinating. Yeah, there we go. So how, uh, how many years did you live in the Solomon Islands? Oh, we were, only, we were there for three years on and off. Um, I don't remember much about it. I remember it being very colonial and that we had, you know, um, houseboys. And uh, I remember when my oldest daughter was born, um, trying to toilet train her and asking my mother, um, how did she toilet train me? And she said, oh, I think the girl did that. So it was, <laughs> right. it was a fairly colonial... You know, we weren't in any way, you know, wealthy or... or but we did have, you know, black houseboys and girls. It was the and style of the time. It was. You had to have a couple. <laughs> we, had, um, we had several, yeah. Um, so I don't remember much about it, but... Um, and then we left and, and went back to the UK and then came to Australia in 65, 66. Okay, so you would have been three, about three or five four. or six, yeah. Okay, and did you move to Adelaide straight away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents... Um, well, they they had three criteria, which was education, culture, and um, uh, the weather. And they picked Adelaide out of every single English-speaking country. And at that time, it was lovely. It was, you know, and Dunstan was about to be premier, so it was Dunstan. And it was a, it was a great place to live and grow up. And really good for, um, you know, when we started doing shows, because it was so small, you felt you could, you could do anything and you know, be a big fish in a small pond and get started and then move on. So it was, it was um, yeah, great place to, to, to grow up. Right, whereabouts in... Because I'm from Adelaide oh, as well. Oh, really? There we go. Yeah, well, what was I'm your... i on about how wonderful Adelaide is. Oh, no, I, Adelaide, I, I know the Dunstan reference. So. Oh, right. <laughs> well, Adelaide people tend to fall into two categories, those that think fondly of it and, you know, um, and those that can't stand it and don't want to ever refer to it. But we grew up in Belair. Just up in the hills. Oh, yep, yep. And you? I shouldn't be asking you questions. Uh, Seacliff. Oh, so the yeah. sort of southwestern okay. suburb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say, though, that that's right, though. Mm. There's the two groups of people who either love it or hate it. Yeah. I just ask the question if someone says they're from Adelaide, oh, so do you get back much? And then I'll either get, oh, no, I couldn't stand it, blah, blah, blah. Or, yeah, I try and get back. And, and then I know which way to take the conversation. Yeah. Yep. So you do get back often? I, I, I've got friends back there. I love going back. It's it's um. Yeah, I'd like to take the kids back and, and, you know, raise them there, but there's no work for an actor. Mm. So, um, you know, I'd be reduced to... I don't know what I'd be reduced to, but, yeah. But it's a, I think it's a lovely place. It's, I think it's the right size. Yeah. So when did you um, make the move to Melbourne? Oh, I was constantly telling people I was going to leave and go to Melbourne, and, and in actual fact, because uh, Sean McAuliffe is from Adelaide as well... And we both decided to um, move to Melbourne together at one stage. So he he was a lawyer at the time and I was unemployed. He booked a room at the top of Little Burke Street in a, in a hotel, much more expensive than I could afford at the time. And we spent a week um, in Melbourne. We actually had, you know, big parties and goodbye to everyone. And we're off to Melbourne to make our fortune. And we went to this little hotel room in, in, in Little Burke Street and... Um, we both did the sum total of seven and a half minutes stand-up each. That was all we did that week. And so that would be one gig? There were two gigs, I think. Or perhaps it was 15 minutes, I can't remember. Oh, right. But anyway, there were two gigs. We both did five minutes. Um, and we stayed in that hotel room for a week, and I was a smoker, and Sean is just not a smoker. And so he probably hated it. <laughs> lean out of the window you know, and, uh, angrily smoking and he would, you know, it was just awful. And then we um, we came back to Adelaide after having said goodbye to everyone. So it was oh, right. really quite embarrassing. So it was a false start? It was a false start. My so, agent owed me some money and she hadn't paid me, so I had to come back. And Sean came back too. And, and, but then later on, obviously, we both made it. But it was a... It was a every year it was a sort of, yeah, I'm going to go to Melbourne because that was the, you know the place you went mm. um, as an actor. Um, it, it seems the longer you put it off, the harder it is to do yeah, it as well. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But I had a show that was going to be in Melbourne, so I knew that I could you know, get people to come and see it, and, and that was how I did it eventually. But it's, it's a bit scary, really, just heading off as a... I know a lot of people who, who didn't stay in Adelaide and who sort of headed off to the big smokes and then just got lost 
you know. So it was quite good yeah. to actually start off and have something behind me before I, before I did. So when did you actually finally properly make the move? Because I think Sean moved in maybe 93? I moved in 93 and he came about a year later. Um, he'd got a gig on uh, the Jim Owen show as a writer, I think. Oh, yeah. And I moved over because I had a, a show that was going to be in the Melbourne Festival. Um, and I did get an agent out of it. And so that was that. Was that. Yeah. So it's been a while. How do you like Melbourne? How does it compare to Adelaide? Oh, Melbourne's lovely, it's, um, but it's one of the only places in Australia you can live and still be an actor full-time because there's a population. But Melbourne's a lovely place. I've got no problem with Melbourne. But no, I do, I do like Adelaide. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely place. I never wanted to go to Sydney. I think Sydney's so uh, ferocious. It's really... There's a real... Um, you know, you can make jokes about yourself in Melbourne. You know, I'm no good at this or um, I'm a dag or, you know... You can show that you're vulnerable in Melbourne and you can make a joke about it, but you can't do that in Sydney. They don't really... That's interesting. They don't... Yeah. Sydney, you've got to present a, an image of, you know, confidence and and humour against yourself is is viewed as a little bit, you know, of a, of a weakness. Whereas in Melbourne, it's much... You know, being vulnerable is, is the norm. It's, I think it's really interesting how different the two cities can be given they sort of, you know, were founded about the same time and aren't that far apart, but there is a big difference. And you attended uh, Adelaide University as well. Yeah, that was where um, I started doing Footlights reviews. Yep. Um, Sean was already doing them. I remember going to going to one they put on um, as part of O-Week that they'd already done, because I had a friend who was in Footlights, and so I went off, and there was... Um, I thought it was quite amusing and Sean was there being very funny um, and so I auditioned um, for their next show which was a law review and I I sang You Are the Christ from Jesus Christ Superstar and I played it on the piano at the same time which they thought was very impressive before I started playing and then they stopped me about two bars in and asked me just <laughs> to sing but nonetheless I did get into the show in a sort of minor capacity and... and um, yeah, and so the rest of my uni career was really not working but doing university shows. Um, and there was a lot of actual... I was doing French, so we did a lot of um, French theatre as well. Um, and then when I left Adelaide Uni, um, Sean and I... As I remember, Sean <clears throat> didn't really have a huge amount to do with Sean at the time, but he and I would both arrive about an hour and a half early for rehearsals for for shows um, and we would just stand around in front of this locked theatre with not really much to say to each other but we right. desperately wanted to be rehearsing so it's sort of I can understand why the two of us have sort of kicked on um, Do you remember the moment you first met him? I remember seeing him on stage he did a sketch with another guy called The Incredible Low-Fat Iced Coffee Carton which involved one of them being a, a talent agent and the other one coming in with a small farmer's unionised coffee carton and making it sing. And right. it was really, you know, not funny at all, but it was more the, the chutzpah of, of, you know, doing something so pathetic. And they were obviously, you know, enjoying it almost more than the audience was. And that was my first view of, <coughs> of Sean. But then Sean and, and a friend of his wanted to go on and do shows after uni, so they asked me if I wanted to and we did these little shows in a place called Club Foot, um, which was in town. Right. Um, which we thought were very funny, and um, not many other people did, but, um, you know, we continued to do them for a while. And I drifted into sort of valid theatre, serious theatre, state theatre company. I started to get gigs at the state theatre company. And yeah, I've perused your resume. You have a, a lot of credits for theatre in South Australia. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it was great. And uh, Simon Phillips was... Oh, there were several artistic directors. I did a lot of work with Simon Phillips um, at, at the time, and um, that was great training. I didn't actually go to a drama school and train, but I did a lot of theatre in Adelaide, and I and, uh, was a member of Magpie, which was the, the children's theatre wing. Uh, that sounds familiar. Do they, do they still exist? No, because... Uh, yeah, I won't. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to libel someone if oh, right. if I go into why it doesn't exist anymore. Okay, now my is that my memory is um, 
a man dressed as a woman in some sort of some sort of Aladdin play. Oh, really? That, I, that might be something else. It might be a dream. Yeah. Magpie was a great theatre company, and we so we used to tour schools and do um, shows from you know kindergarten to secondary school. Um, but that was two years of a full-time salary, so that was extraordinary. Oh, you yeah. just get a full-time salary for being an actor. It was wonderful. So you've done all sorts of different media. Which is your, um, your favourite? I do like theatre because you, you do work... You know, TV, you, you turn up, you sit in the green room, you go on set, um, you might do a scene or it's got its own challenges, but sometimes it just involves, you know sitting around all day and you you may have two lines and that's your day's work and and then you go home after being paid quite well whereas theatre you know you'll be asked to sing and dance and play an instrument and rehearse all day and then it's much more challenging and demanding and you know but it pays the pay is shit house hmm. so you know you you it swings and, and roundabouts on um, tv everything is almost conspiring to prevent you from acting you know you've got it's not a realistic set because you've got cameras and 100 people you're constantly having to stop and redo it um you know you've got to hit a mark you're only doing a little bit you know have no control over what you know is going to be shown of you yeah so it's like everything is trying to prevent you from acting and so the challenge really is just trying to you know do it despite the the extraordinary amount of annoyances that there are you know it's a very frustrating yeah um process sometimes so it's its own sort of challenge it's not it's not as rewarding as you know going on stage and doing it from beginning to end and being in complete control of what you do but on the other hand you know you do something like winners and losers even though it is you know a fairly soapy type of thing it's not shakespeare um but you you are working with a group of people over a long period and you start to get a shared history with them so there's the idea of you know the character continuing to develop and all those issues and then trying to keep it fresh and even after doing it for three years over and over and over again so it's got its own challenges um and the pay is good and and my children can eat so you know tv is well that's a plus yeah tv is good you mentioned winners and losers more mainstream audiences would know you as Brian. Yes, they would. Is yes. it is it gross? Is gross. That gross, right? There was a must you know, the first episode is of the of the show is it's about four girls who were who were teased at high school and my daughter is one of the four and um, her nickname was Gross Out and you know the whole name as far as I can see was just so that they could get this you know offensive nickname in the first episode and now. It's the Gross family and Brian Gross. And no, they're stuck with it. They're stuck with it. They can't do anything about it now. Um, well, I actually I have a little clip here that I've brought, uh, chosen completely at random from Season 1, Episode 17. Would you care to have a look? Of, um, of Winners and Losers? I'd be delighted to have a look, yeah. I can't imagine what, what you've got there. What's going on, Dad? Uh, I think she's just rattled about what happened to Patrick. Well, it was no biggie. Well, it's not every day your baby boy gets mugged. He's not a baby. <laughs> he is to her. Mum never gets upset about this sort of stuff. Yeah, like that time when I broke my arm. You were the one freaking out. Mm-hmm. I was not. Uh, look, just cut your mum some slack, OK? All right. Yes, being a good family man and a, and a lovely husband and a, and a wise father. Mr. Yeah, Brian Grace is quite a... It, it, the, the family is, is sort of symbolic of, you know, that thing that everyone wants to achieve, which is the older children growing up and still wanting to stay at home and still liking their parents, which, you know, the happy family 20 years on, which is, you know, basically impossible, but everyone likes to believe that it is. Um, but that was from the um, first series, which was a little bit more comic. And um, that one was actually written by um, a, a friend whose son played soccer with my son. Oh, right. Um, and it was about Denise's... Uh, Trish Gross's passage through menopause, so that's why she's behaving strangely. Um, the show got has got, I think, a little bit more melodramatic and and soap opery. I shouldn't be saying these things. You more know, I might be doing another series. Oh, um, but more, the first one was quite comic, and I think it was it had that sort of what do they call it, dramedy? Um, yeah. Now element behind it. Is it more of the drama and less of the? I think there's more of the drama, but I think it's comedy. inevitable. You know, the I 
the ideas that made the show good in the first place, which are four girls, you know, going to a high school reunion and winning a million dollars, whatever it is, yeah. you know, that premise is, is now so far forgotten now that we're three, four years down the track and inevitably it becomes a different thing. That happens sometimes. Yeah, I think it, it's very hard to, to, to keep something tight for, for, although, you know, I've just been watching The Walking Dead you know, fourth series, and that seems <laughs> remarkably tight since, you know, four series on. Um, I don't think um, we pay our writers enough in Australia, and I don't think we spend enough money. We don't spend enough money on writing. Mm. And I think, you know, you look at what the Americans and the British do, and it's just extraordinary. But um, it's, a, it's a very... Um, it strikes a chord with the demographic that all the stations want, which is that female 19 to to 30 to 40 year old yep. demographic because that's the one that that decides what's going to be watched and um, it's the people who who watch it are absolutely fanatical about it and it's you know I'm quite I'm quite pleased to be part of it because the four girls are all different shapes and sizes you know there's no sort of oh you have to be a model to be in the show and you've got me and Denise Scott who are by no means oil paintings you know <laughs> so it's just ordinary people so I quite like the fact that you don't have to be buffed and and you know and you don't have to be a model to be on the show mm, that's that's true yeah. actually I've, can i just play you the next 10 seconds yes um let, tell me if, it's interesting you say ordinary people can be on the show right. uh tell me if you notice anything interesting about the next 10 seconds what the hell were you thinking beck said the cops couldn't do anything at least wanted to is that you? Oh my goodness! There that is me. Completely destroying my argument. That's um, yeah. That wasn't my shirt. Is it, uh, were you just walking through the shot, um, not not thinking, or were you actually there for a reason? No, I was an extra. That's um, always um, I've always. Do you do much of that? Not not a lot. That was the first one that I'd been paid to do that wasn't cut out of the show. <laughs> I find I. I, I just feel so sorry for people. I mean, some people really enjoy the work, but it seems to me it's the most boring thing in the world. You're there for all day. They they really treat you like a second-class citizen. And yeah, you, know, you don't even yeah. eat with everyone else. Everyone else, the actors go off and the crew go off and then they eat together and then the, the extras are shuffled off to some secondary tent for the, you know, the B-grade menu. And you have to stand in the cold while the actors get the warm room. It's really, you know, it's it's just awful. That's true. Although um, my experience as an extra in Winners and Losers is one of the better ones. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. There was a safety briefing. Oh, um, right. For, for walking <laughs> in the background. Oh, was there? Yeah, oh. which was which was good. Yeah. Um, I've done much more dangerous things with oh, no really? safety briefing. <laughs> well, extras are expendable, really. <laughs> it's just, yeah, they're lining up around yeah. the block. I remember I started off, I, did, I was an extra in a sketch on Full Frontal when Sean McAuliffe and Gary McCaffrey, who's another old Adelaide footlighter, were, um, they were actually producing it, I think, at the time. And they were certainly two of the head, two of the main writers. And they said, Francis, we'll get you on the show. We'll just put you on as an extra. Um, but they gave me actually something vaguely comic to do. It was a Melrose Place um, takeoff. But I didn't know that extras aren't supposed to talk to the director. And I, you know, right. Sean and Gary's great plan was to get me on the show and, and you know, get me on as a regular character, which yep. they eventually did manage, bless them. So I was aware of that, that this I was going to be on this show. And so I was chatting to the director, but I'm not allowed to chat to the director. And he didn't know. He, he, I was just this extra coming and talking to him. Well, he, then, he didn't know that you you weren't supposed to talk to him? No, he knew that I wasn't supposed to talk to him. Oh, he didn't right. know that Gary and Sean, had, I was a friend of Gary and Sean's, uh, and they'd got me on this particular sketch just to start grooming me to get me on as a regular character. So, and then they come down from the writer's room and, and watch, because it's the first time I've been on the show. Um, so he's feeling, this is Ted Emery. Not only has he got an extra chatting to him, which just shouldn't happen, but also the two producers stroke writers are coming down and watching, which never happens either. So right. he was very, he was a bit um, worried about what was happening. I loved that show when I was growing up. It was one of my favorite shows, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think it did some... I mean, it was an hour of comedy and it was written every week and you can't do that without doing ad parodies and, you know, impersonations of 
Ray Martin and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, you know, I think it was... Doing an hour of comedy every week is really hard. Yeah. And I think they did really well. And, you know, um, you had... I mean, Sean McAuliffe and Gary McCaffrey, I think, are, are now... Because Gary writes... Has written everything. You know, all Sean's stuff Gary has written with him. So all the Mad as Hell stuff is... And Newstopia and, and the McAuliffe program stuff has all been written by um, Sean and Gary and a few others. But mainly those two. And I think they're... I don't think there's a better writers of that sort of stuff in Australia. And and they were writing for Full Frontal. So, you know, there was some really good stuff coming out. And Sean was writing his own, you know, all those Fabio and, and Milo Kerrigan and, you know... <laughs> and David McGann, who's with the very straight character, who was hysterical as well. So, yeah, there was some very good stuff in there. It was not a pleasant place to work because the cast... There was, I mean, the cast were lovely, but... Everyone, there was a huge cast, and everyone wanted, you know, their two minutes, and everyone got, you know, one minute, and no one was happy about it, and everyone was always, you know, wanting more sketches to do. And the writers were paid by the minute. You'd be on 30 seconds, or you'd be on a minute. So you'd be paid, say, you get $200 a minute, and you're on 30 seconds, you get $100 a week. And right. if you get any more on, then you'll get more money. So everyone is trying to get their minutes up. They're trying to get more sketches on, and then when they renegotiate, they're trying to get on to two or three minutes a week. But that meant that they would write these enormously long sketches. You'd have one comic premise, and then you would drag it out as long and as to long as you possibly get them, can. Get the screen get, time up. Yeah. So you had these very, very long sketches that sometimes that had only one comic idea in, in them. So and that was a bit poisonous I think for the writers to be on that sort of you know competitive sort of I'm on a minute and this guy's on two minutes and, and were, you, were you writing as well as performing <clears throat> no I was just a performer I did write some music for some of Sean's songs if you listen to Sean's David McGann's sketch about zebras you'll hear me singing and playing that the, the song zebra in the background which is <laughs> uh, my own composition and there's also a song about fish I think in a David McGann Fish sketch. It was which, um, there was a cat's cat song. I didn't do the didn't cat, do the cat song. song. No, that's <laughs> what I remember. Else. He's gonna. He's gonna. Yeah. It was just cats, 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 cats. That cat. may have been me actually, because <laughs> that's the sort of thing I did write in those days. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't write any any sketches at all. So how's working on that show it, back in the nineties <clears> uh, compared to the more recent sketch comedy work you've done? Oh, I actually left Full Frontal because I was, you know, you'd be. You know what I was saying before. I would I would stand in the background, um, you know, for two sketches wearing two different wigs, and then I would go home, and that would be you know a day's work. And I'd only just come to Melbourne; it was just starting my career, and um, and uh, it just wasn't enough. So I I left, and I started doing more theatre and you know um, guest stuff. So it, and it was a bit. It was the writing. I don't think was was quite as good as. You know the stuff like the McAuliffe program or Mad as Hell. McAuliffe program was was just a joy to work on because the material was just so you know so great, and the characters you know you could be playing anything, so it was just fantastic. And there was basically it was me, Wayne and Roz, Wayne Hope and Roz Hammond doing you know most of the the stuff with Sean as well. So it, it was it was just. A joy, and I don't think that you know. I think, especially the second and third series, I don't think there's been you know a more seamless and more hysterical sketch comedy show in Australia. No, nothing to do with you know my contribution to it, but just the writing was brilliant. Um, no, it's certainly one of my favourite shows yeah. growing up as well. And you know, before the internet, when there was less comedy around, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would just you know wait. Yeah wait for that show to be on TV yeah. and, and tape it on VCR right. and watch it again and yeah. again. Actually, I've, I've got a clip of that if you'd oh, like to listen. To that. <laughs> and welcome back. Well, before the break, we asked for your information on any police brutality or police corruption or any criminal activity involving police officers of which you, the public, were aware. And uh, we have word now from Sergeant Colin Drilby. Um, what sort of response have we had? Uh, we've uh, logged no calls at all. Sean? <laughs> Very poor response so far. Yeah, well, I, I suppose that's good to hear. Big yours? It's good to hear. Yes, it's, it's very enjoyable. <laughs> and finally, leaving the matter of police corruption for the moment, um, 
What response uh, have we had to the appeal for information on the Cavelli Park uh, burglar there, seen there wearing a light T-shirt, jeans and uh, runners? Well, Sean, uh, we've had a number of excellent responses with uh, several callers reporting uh, positive sightings of this man in the vicinity of the Meyer shop front window. Sometimes naked. Disgusting. Well, uh, uh, Sergeant, uh, uh, good luck finding the man you're after. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, that's um, my favourite. I think they're my favourite exchange in the whole show is it's good to hear. Yes, it's very enjoyable. <laughs> um, yeah, my favourite sketch was um, the Meat Boy sketch, which is Sean cutting to uh, a salami um, with eyes and a nose or something like that and talking that he's going to be the, you know, the main character in a new kid's show and he's talking about what things they're going to do and a dog comes in and eats him. <laughs> and I, you know, I read that and I thought, oh, yeah, it's not very funny, but just the dog behaved perfectly. You know, the dog comes in, grabs Meat Boy, tears his head off, <laughs> goes into the background where he's still in shot and eats the head. It's just the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life and I literally fell off my chair when I, when I watched it. It's just hilarious. And, and I think I they think were... That's they in were, the very first episode, I think. That's it, it may have been, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's just those... Sean and Gary getting very, very good at having an idea that's a comic idea because anyone can have a comic idea but and and they could get the slimmest comic idea and make it work brilliantly i thought you know they they're just you know there's nothing they can't do um and also i think one of the things about that show is that it was all written beforehand every single sketch was written before we actually shot so um just about so it was all it was all there before we there was no pressure on we've got to write a show for next oh, week right. you know it was all done it was all you know perfectly done and and polished and and then they could just concentrate on doing it you know so i think that's one of the things too that the abc gave them the money to to write it and then to to do it you know that was that was important right. um, yeah. is it um what what's the the sort of difference between uh, the McAuliffe program 10 years ago and mad as hell more recently cuz um Budgets have gone down and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's harder it's to a make different comedy. show. I mean, from my point of view, I mean, it's, a, it's a narrower show in the sense because it's only about current affairs. So from my point of view, um, whereas in the McAuliffe program I could be doing a Nazi criminal and then a circus performer and then, you know, Robert Hughes and then a, you know, uh, uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm usually playing an expert or a, a politician in Mad as Hell. So the range as an actor is much smaller. Um, and so there's always that thing of, am I going to try and do a character here and you've got to establish a character, you know, it's a 30-second, one-minute sketch, then you've got to establish a strong character and, and is that going to take over the sketch and is it better just to do the lines and get the gags out on the other hand, you can't do that every single time, otherwise you're doing the same thing. So mm. that's the interest, that's the challenge. Plus, with Mad as Hell, you know, we get the sketches on the weekend and shoot on Tuesday, and sometimes we get them on Monday night and we shoot on Tuesday. And you don't really know what you're going to look like until you go into makeup and um, you get the wig. And, and that's a big thing for character, you know. For yeah. a character actor, you really need to know what you look like. Um, and Karchi Magyar, who's the makeup guy who does um, all of Sean's work, is um, extraordinary. Um, the prosthetics that he can do, and he, you, you know, you go into makeup and he 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 he's got some wig or some moustache for you, and it completely changes the shape of your face and or your look, and and that's the character, you know. Sometimes it's just I had you know no idea I had to do a. I don't know if you remember Welcher and Welcher. I played two characters in that. One was the the one a solicitor, and one was this guy called Mr. Buzzer, who was a you know a, a bit of a crim. <laughs> and I had nothing, but as soon as I put Karchi's sort of he had this sort of long hair but balding at the top, 
it just changed me completely. And, and that was the character, you know, you put that wig on and, and, and that was it. I may not dress as nicely as you or have all the posh talk or, or make enough money to buy my wife fancy clothes. And, and sure, she may be old and funny looking and not have long soft hair like your wife or, or long beautiful legs and I may expose myself in public, yes. But don't think, yes, because you read a few punsy books that you're better than what I am. And I'll not hear a word said against my wife here. Welchers are just busy, dear. Now you shut your gob, you old mole. So, yeah, Mad as Hell is a, is a lot more challenging as to, you know, what you do and how much time you have and, and how much latitude you have. Because, you know, if you're playing an expert, you can't be too different. You know, you're on TV as an expert. So, yeah. um, I think there's less money. I mean, I remember, um, you know, we did a sketch for the McAuliffe programme called Spiffington Mance. Um, yep, that's the one with all the furniture yeah. and you're smashing everything. Yeah, yeah. And everything gets smashed. And, you know, that costs a lot of money, you know. There's another sketch that we did in the McAuliffe program where it's just Sean and someone else just as business man and woman just talking about some deal, getting into the car, forgetting to take the, the sunscreen off the windscreen, you know, so that they can't see where they're going, and just driving into a wall. And it's, you know, 30 seconds and a car gets destroyed. All oh, right. Yeah. I've seen that sketch. I didn't realise they uh, forgot to take the sun visor. Well, that was the ga- that's I, the gag. I yeah. thought they just crashed. All right. <laughs> I don't know why. It's obviously badly shot. It <laughs> doesn't come across. Yeah, they, they, that's the thing that they're still talking. They're talking so much that they don't um yeah. crash a car. That's ten thousand dollars yeah. right there. And um, I I don't know whether the ABC would give them money for that nowadays. You know, but Mad as Hell is very very cheap to make. It's just a guy in the studio, and you know other people come in and talk to him so speaking about cheap sketches um i came and sat in the audience of uh, mad as hell oh, earlier this okay. year very funny yeah. there was a sketch that i thought was the funniest sketch that i saw that night and one of the funniest i've ever seen right. it was a pre-recorded sketch that uh, was played to the audience it was oh, right. a sketch called blather oh <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, that was considered too similar to other shows that the ABC had on at the time. Now, uh, now did that did that not air in the program? It didn't ever air. Oh man, because no. I I was I got home the one the next day and I was watching it. And wait a minute, the sketch yeah sketch wasn't there. I thought it might appear later on a later. Every episode. week, they would play it to the audience, but they never got the nerve up to. It was just so close to it, that that show the, sort of yeah. show. Do, do you want to maybe explain it? Um, uh, it was just a take off of a. I was the host of a. A, one of those, you know, ubiquitous panel shows with um, comedians just trying to talk over the top of each other and saying the most inane things and then everyone pissing themselves <laughs> with laughter. So, you know, my questions would be, say something that's old. And someone would say, you know, afros. And everyone would piss themselves. <laughs> and, you know, so that was basically it. But it was very close to... Um, or just about any other panel show that's ever been on. I just, I loved the just attention to detail, lack of attention to detail. The the background of the oh, the right, set yeah. was just a blank wall. <laughs> it was a really crappy set. And kicks uh, cutting to the audience, just <laughs> applauding hugely, hugely yeah, yeah, yeah. applauding for nothing. Yeah, and then the nothing. the panelists getting just you know laughing hysterically at anything anyone ever says. Yeah, yeah. no, that was sad. That didn't get on. There's a lot of stuff that that never got on that that you know that i don't know what happens to it yeah yeah It'd be on the dvd i suppose oh that will be on the DVD. i think there is a dvd it's pretty yeah. hard to to bring a dvd out of that because it's so you know what is happening that week yeah but i think they can get some stuff out. i think there is plans to a dvd yeah oh very good uh who are your influences oh um I, that's hard to say really um comically yeah, I've been asked this question before in interviews and I, I never have an answer. Um, I grew up with all those, you know, uh, two Ronnies and um, Dick Emery and, you know, Dave Allen, all those 70s um, comedy shows which were would be extremely politically un- incorrect nowadays, but um, it, at that time... It's extraordinary what got in the 70s, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, all those sketch comedies had basically interludes of what was effectively soft porn while you know <laughs> yes. groups like pan's people and 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 then there was um oh, what was that show with the white family and the black family next to living next to each other um which was just an excuse for racist jokes um all in the family no it was a british thing with um oh, i can't remember the name one of your viewers will 
people phone in, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just a... Reg Varney, I think he was in it. Anyway, it was just a terrible, terrible show where the white bigot hated the black family and would make jokes about, you know, nignogs. It was terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up with, with, with all that sort of stuff and obviously, you know, the goons and... and um, I always used to listen to the goons on on the weekend and things like My Word and um, which was you know uh, Frank Muir and Dennis Norden. I think I'm probably more influenced by the people I um, did shows with at, at uni, and that's people like Sean and and you know because I arrived at, at, at Footlights and and they were the funniest people in the world, you know that I that I'd ever met. Um, so I I think I was quite influenced by them. Sean, I remember I had never um, seen um, uh, Jerry Lewis. I'd never seen a Jerry Lewis film or, or really come across him before um, I met Sean. And so I met Sean and, and he was... It's, I couldn't believe when I did see Jerry Lewis later how much he'd copied Sean. Um, because or, Sean... Or the other way around. No. Well, you see, I saw Jerry Lewis after I saw Sean. Right. So yeah. So oh. to me, Jerry Lewis had just <laughs> stolen everything from Sean McCarthy, <laughs> and somehow put it to film thirty yeah, years earlier. Couldn't work it out. <laughs> um, so Sean was really influenced by by Jerry Lewis. Um, so that's his influence. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I I, I didn't really have um, you know strong theatrical influences. I don't think. Is there anyone um, at the moment uh, acting or, or doing comedy that in Australia that uh, you uh, you really admire? Who isn't someone who you already, yeah, who already with. worked with? <laughs> yeah. I think the um, I I think Tony Martin's extraordinary. I think Bob Franklin's extraordinary. I think he's um, he's a really underutilized comic talent. He did a show that I was involved in called um, Introducing Gary Petty, which was only on Foxtel, um, and the budget was so small that we used to have to, you know, half of it half of it would be set in a cafe and um, there was no budget to have a cafe. We used one of the cafes on Brunswick Street, but they refused to shut down. So we used the front part of the cafe while the, the other part of the cafe was still in operation. So it was just a, a nightmare sound-wise. Mm, authentic, it was, though. It was authentic. <laughs> and there was no time to do shots, so the director just had to put us in vague order of speaking and pan across us while we did our dialogue. But the concept was that um, Bob Franklin was um, had a list of people that had um, slighted him or humiliated him in his past, like the, the girl that he kissed and went and told everyone, or the parrot that, that swore at him. Right. And... Um, he would go back, you know, now that he's a bit older, he would go back and try and um, get back at them. And obviously it would never work and he would end up worse off. So every episode... Sort of, sort of like My Name is Earl, well, except I, the reverse I philosophy. I absolutely think that My Name is Earl, because this was well before My Name is Earl, uh, and it was Foxtel, and I have absolutely no doubt that that, that concept was seen by someone and Americanized into, wow. um, you know... Instead of him going back and trying to get back, it's him going back and trying to, you know, redeem himself. But I thought it was a great, it was a great concept, and it was just that um, it didn't have the money to, to do it properly, so it never, um, it never really worked. But it was a, a beautiful, you know, idea. Go, this this petty man going back and trying to get back at the the parrot that you know was rude to him or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think he should be doing a lot more. Bob Franklin. You also direct as well. Yeah, I put I put director on my <laughs> thing in the hope that it would attract some directing work. I have um, in the past directed at the National Drama School and Monash Uni. I've sort of gone in as a as a guest director. Yep. Um, and that is enormous fun because you, you don't have to worry about um, actors' egos because they're students. So you know you were their boss. So it's like having slightly incompetent puppets to, to, to work <laughs> with, you know. Um, I'm being mean now. Um, and that's, that's great fun. Uh, it's, yeah, because I have done a lot of... I've started to do much more teaching. I think you, as you get older, you sort of start to think that you know what you're talking about. And, and um, so I have started to do a bit more teaching. Um, this room we're in 
is the venue for for it. That's right. Um, it's a very nice row. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, directing is is it's a it's a whole new thing because you can even if you can see what you know the actor should be doing or what the scene should look like, which is you know, I think is easy once you get to a certain level of experience. You go, well, I know what that should be like, but then communicating it to the other person that is the the real. How do you do that? And you, you, mm. I can see sometimes I open my mouth and say things and click, you know, all right, I've got it. And sometimes you, you say something and you can just see the poor actor going completely down the wrong road and there's nothing you can do to bring them back. Even if you say, oh, actually what I told you, you know, what I suggested you do is, is just wrong, it's my fault. You still can't get them back because you've just given them that idea and they can't get it out of their head. So it's um. a really interesting thing about how you get people to see what, or how you direct, it's a directing thing, it's not telling them, it's trying to direct them to the, you know, the, to find it themselves, but um, yeah, it's fascinating, but it's a whole new ball game, really. So yes, you're teaching acting as well? At I'm, the I'm coaching acting in this small room, um, because winners and losers might be coming back, and um, I can't really take on any work until they tell me that it is coming back, uh, yeah. and so I've got to find something to do, so I'm trying to get um, some acting students. And I have uh, some, so that's, you know. Right. How does one become an acting student of Francis Greenslade? You ring my, you can go onto the website, there's a francisgreenslade.com um, website, and it's got all my details on there, and you can contact me, and um, uh, I will, you know, turn you into one of the most brilliant actors that's ever, ever lived. But no, I did put director on there, because I have directed, but, you know, it just sounds better. I probably put musician there as well, did I? No, I didn't. I, mean, I must says, go back and change. It's, it's that. on your CV, but it's not on the top line. All oh, right, yeah, okay. You can play a number of instruments. I can play a number of instruments. Yes. Um, sadly, the one I play the least well is the clarinet. I played it at school, and I learned it at school, and I was never very good at it. And I gave it up as soon as I could. And as soon as I do a theatre show and there's any sort of music, and the composer sees I can play the clarinet, then I am, you know roped into playing the clarinet and if you if you can't play the clarinet very well and you haven't played the clarinet for a while then the noise is not very nice mm. and if you haven't got the embouchure then you're going to squeak and there's nothing as unprotected as a squeaking clarinet in, mm. the, in the middle of the stage trying to create a, a <laughs> mood and then there's a <laughs> and it's obviously you and yeah it's a very um maybe you should take that off the website <laughs> perhaps i should i remember I had to play a clarinet in a, in a show about Antarctica, which is probably the worst show I've ever been in in my life. And the reviewer said, Francis Greenslade's frantic, breathy clarinet playing made the person next to me hurriedly search in their handbag for a cough lozenge. What an extraordinary oh. thing to say. I mean, it wasn't very good clarinet playing. doesn't even make sense. It doesn't <laughs> make sense. <laughs> Who wrote that? I can't remember. Yeah. Some vicious Adelaide reviewer. Yeah, no, that was a, a kids' show called Even Song for Antarctica, which the set was entirely made out of polystyrene, and the spirit of Antarctica was portrayed by a woman in diaphanous blue and green robes playing a harp, who occasionally <laughs> would stop playing, look at the audience and say, in 1912, 200,000 seals were killed, and then the action would go back. It's <laughs> awful. Powerful. Yeah, it was. <laughs> We did a, an interview in Mad as Hell um, with uh, Robin Nevin, who was just doing Queen Lear. Right. Um, and Sean didn't tell her... The, the whole premise was that it, the interview was going to be at Sean's house, so the set was, was Sean's living room, and Sean was going to be late. So I was entertaining Robin Nevin um, with a piano accordion. <laughs> um, but he didn't tell Robin that this was going to happen. He said, we're going to do an interview, um, you know, come to the, to the studio. So um, was, Sean there, was Sean not there Sean at all? And Sean would come in oh, right. after I had finished entertaining her. So the whole thing, and the stage, first eight weeks says, right, we're, you know, going in five, four, three, two, one. And I start playing Golden Brown on the piano accordion and singing it to Robin Neville. <laughs> and she is not expecting this and, and hadn't been told that I was going to be singing Golden Brown on the piano accordion. And I don't think it was a very pleasant surprise that <laughs> that this happened. And then Sean came in, but I think the damage had already been done. And, and you know, 
it was it was a disaster, um, and I've never wanted to see her again. Oh, I, do, no. I want to apologise for having inflicted you know golden brown on the piano accordion on Robin Nevin, unbeknownst to her. But um, yeah, maybe if you'd played it on the harpsichord like the original. Well, I think <laughs> yeah, yes. Even then, I think it would have been a bit amusing. But um, yeah. 2003, that was 10 years ago. Right. That would have been a busy year for you because you were in Welcher and Welcher. Yep. And then McAuliffe Tonight yeah, yeah, as well yeah. on Channel 9. Yeah, McAuliffe Tonight was an interesting show. Um, it actually, it should have done better, um, but they put it up against Denton. Um, the ABC did, um, Andrew Denton had his... Um, Enough rope. Yeah. And so they both got over a million, I think, but they took viewers from each other. And then Denton eventually won. Um, the networks were a bit naughty because the network was a bit naughty. They We did one series of 13, I think, and they signed us up for a second. And we negotiated and we signed the contracts. And it was going to continue immediately after the, the end of the first. But after we had done the last one in the first series, having signed for the second series, they said, no, there won't be a second series. So I don't. I think they went through the charade of of getting us to sign, so that Sean couldn't actually do one that he knew was going to be the last one. Ah, right. Because they worried about what he was going to do. But I, I think that was a bit. You know, Channel Nine are occasionally notorious for treating people badly. Um, it was one of those shows. It, it was almost a parody of a. I mean, it was a parody of a. A chat show but it also was a chat show and it, it was a popular show and it had you know some very funny things in it as usual because it had sean in it and sean writing and gary writing and um but it, it was um i mean i don't think that that is really sean's forte you know i think sean's forte is writing stuff for himself to do especially character stuff you know i i think that's his forte um and a chat show is not quite him but no, I, it was a, it was a very funny show. I loved, I loved the uh, the audience participation on game show segment yes. at the end with the yeah. Pete Smith prize reads, which That's is right. just hilarious. Well, why not get away from it all with a weekend of grey water rafting at the Werribee Sewage Treatment Works? <laughs> Test your rafting skills and your ability to withstand odour. Over to you, Sean and Bozo. <laughs> OK, thank you very much, Pete. And uh, whom do we have here, Francis? No one, Sean. The uh, McCall tonight zombie is still fetching her from the audience. Oh, yeah. Ah, here he is now. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Excellent. All right, thank, thank you very much, Jason. You're all welcome, Sean. <laughs> OK, thank you very much indeed, Jason. Sean, this is Beverly. Beverly is 64. She's a call centre operator. She has a dog called Puppy. Her ambition is to win the lottery, and here are her medical records. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Just have a quick look. Oh, tapeworm. <laughs> It was very, um, it was very scripted. The whole thing, everything was was scripted. Um, yeah. So it, it was it was a parody of a game show, but you know, a talk show. But um, it's a pity it didn't go for a second series. I think it would have been interesting to see where it went. But um, not to be. Got any projects on the horizon at the moment aside from winners and losers? Mad as hell will probably come back. So or definitely come back. So there'll be that next year, and and um, I'm just waiting to hear whether. Winners and losers is such a you know it's it's about um, six seven eight months work if there's a season so it just takes up so much time um, that it's very difficult to find even though I'm not required for very much of it I'm I'm their position you mm. know so I have to be on call um, and then at the moment I'm just hanging around to wait and hear whether it's going ahead so it's it's impossible to 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 really do anything because. Um, there's no time, you know, and I don't know whether I'll be free. So, no, it, it's it's. I'm just. I've got three um, uh, kids who are at school. So at the moment, I'm just being, you know, the family man, which is quite pleasant. Oh you right, know? yeah. That's the most interesting thing, really, is that for me is that, um, you know, when I started out, it was all I want to do challenging work, and I'm not going to be a full frontal because I'm not being challenged enough. And um, now that I have kids you, you do find you're um, challenged enough well you yeah <laughs> absolutely there are other challenges but my my ambitions are that they not die from you know lack of nourishment or they have an education etc etc so those are my priorities and I'm you know I think 
20 years ago, I would have sat in winners and losers and gone, this is awful. Um, I'm not being challenged. I'm playing the same character, you know, in the same house, um, episode after episode. And now I can take my children to to a restaurant and, and you know, take them on a holiday or whatever. Um, and that's probably just a function of getting old, but it's also a function, I think, of having children and, and your, your priorities do change. So, When you're out and about in Melbourne, do, do people come up to you and say, hi, Francis? Oh, occasionally. I think people most... I mean, whether or not you get recognised, it's... You, you do... Most people just leave you alone. Some people will think that they know you as a friend. Because yep. they So then they say, hi... Did you go to um, Broadmeadows Kindergarten? And then you have to... You either have to say, no, I'm an actor, which sounds like... It sounds a little bit wanky. Yeah. Um, no, you recognise me from the television. Or else you have to go through the charade of going, no, I never went to Broadmeadows Kindergarten. Oh, right, do you know Bill? No, I don't know Bill. Then you have to go through all that. And then once you do reveal to them they're an actor, they then... Inevitably, the question... Oh, what have I what have I seen you in? Mm. And so then you've got to prove to them you're an actor by <laughs> by going through your CV, and then it, oh, well, I was in this. No, I didn't see that. Um, well, I was in this. Oh, that's a shit out show. Oh, well, I'm doing this, and I'm no, I never watch it. And then it's just you, know, you find yourself trying to justify yourself to you say I am an actor. I promise. Uh, but uh, you occasionally get recognised, but it's generally only in a positive way. Some people occasionally will forget that you're not on TV and carry on the conversation as though you are still behind a screen and can't right. hear them. It's that guy. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's that guy. A friend of mine who was on Full Frontal had that. He was standing in a queue and two people in front of him were going, that's the guy from Full Frontal. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's the guy from Full Frontal. And so he thought, well, I'll just put him out of the misery. It's, it's all right. You can talk to me. <laughs> and they went, oh, we can talk to you, can we? <laughs> So you can't. Win. <laughs> Who was that? If that was Glenn Butcher. Glenn Butcher, right? Remember yeah. him? Yeah, he's a great. I don't know what he's doing. He's in Sydney, I think, doing music theatre. He's a lovely man. I, I had a moment like that. Uh, I went to see a show at the Malthouse Theatre recently, right. and Kim Kinjal was in, oh, in right. the show. Yeah. And and waiting around outside, I saw Ross Wilson. Who was oh, uh, Ross Williams? Ross Williams wow. from uh, from Full Frontal, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I I haven't seen him in anything since Full Frontal. Nah. I'm like, yeah. wow, it looks like Ross Williams, except. Older. 20 years old. <laughs> yeah. He still does the um, Shakespeare in the Park, I think. But he was interesting because he, he was king of theatre in Melbourne. You know, people would work for um, Malthouse, the Playbox, as it then was, or they would work for MTC, but generally people wouldn't work for both. But he was one who worked for both. And he had a very um, successful theatrical career, and then he went on Full Frontal, and he immediately became known as that Full Frontal sketch comedian. Mm. And his... Theatre work dried up because people didn't want to hire a sketch comedian. Uh-huh. So you can get really typecast in this business, but at least that means you're being cast. So it, it's, it can be quite humiliating sometimes to realise the sort of parts that you know people see you in. Um, you know, mentally retarded child molester, or <laughs> why? Why did you ask me? Um, yeah, but you can't do anything about it. You just got to you know run with it. It's the profession where you are condemned by your appearance you know you are who you look like and that's it mm. you can't really do anything about it just to close on mm-hmm. what is the what's the most important lesson you've learnt uh, in showbiz timing <laughs> uh, in showbiz well it depends I think you know I, I, I sort of had two streams of work and one is that sort of um, comedy with you know with Sean and Full Frontal and the other is more more um I think just stay calm. You know, I find rehearsals... There's this story, you know, that they they asked Laurence Olivier, um, oh, you must have had a... You must have really enjoyed your career. And he said, no, I I hated it. That rehearsal was a nightmare and performing was extremely frustrating. And apart from two, a couple of nights on, you know, doing light comedies, it's been been very unpleasant. And I can understand what he means. I find rehearsing... Rehearsing um, for a show, theatre, is just... I find it awful and I go home and and you just feel that you failed and you haven't managed to you know rise to the challenge and and it's a constant trying and 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 failing and um and then you get up in the morning and you go back and you try again and you fail again um and then you know 
doing the show is is I find equally frustrating because you've got to do it every night and you've got to you know find a find the freshness and and you know I, it, I find it all very difficult. So I just think it's a matter of staying calm and and you know it's a very powerless, helpless um, profession because you're only you know you've got to wait until you've been asked to do something you've got to sit by the phone unless you start generating your own work but generally you know you're asked to audition or you're asked to do something but you've got to wait for them to ask you so you don't have much control and when you are you know sitting around waiting it's very very easy to start thinking I you know no one wants me and I I'm no good and 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 this is the thing that every actor I think goes through it's really hard to to um to keep confident and 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 so I think that's the thing is just to keep on going and and stay calm and and don't get depressed about it because it's very easy to get depressed it's like keep calm and be confident keep calm and be confident yeah, that's, that's the way that could it. be a meme we could make that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but I mean you know of any if you look at the people who who succeed the only thing you can say about them is that they kept confident and kept on going you know there's no that's the only thing they have in common um so yeah persevere francis greenslade thank you very much for being today's other famous person it was a pleasure